0: Thank you for joining us for another edition of Heartland History, the podcast of the Midwestern History Association. I'm your host, John Lauck. Our show today is produced by Dana Brown. Our guest today is Silvana Sadali, a professor of history at St. Louis University. Silvana earned her PhD in American Studies from Harvard University. Today we are very pleased to be discussing her new book from Cambridge University Press entitled Frontier Democracy Constitutional Conventions in the Old Northwest. Welcome to Heartland History, Silvana.
1: Thank you. It's, it's wonderful to have this opportunity to talk about the work.
0: Well thank you again for joining us. Uh, why don't we begin today by talking about what exactly is a constitutional convention and how do they work?
1: Well that's a great question um, and it's a question I, I wish uh, more of my students would ask. Um, whenever a, a new territory Wants to join the union, um, they have to form their own government. Uh, it's a prerequisite to uh, approaching Congress for entry into the union. And in order to do that, um, they have to elect delegates. Uh, usually these are just folks from, you know, well known, prosperous, but not necessarily the wealthiest or, or even maybe the best educated folks in the neighborhood, and these, are, these men are elected as delegates to go to the capital city and craft a state constitution for the new state. Um, very often, and this is a process that still goes on occasionally. Uh, states occasionally need to revise their state constitution, and the same process happens. The, the state legislature passes a law calling a, constitu- uh, a constitutional convention and then delegates are elected and they meet at a yeah. almost always in the state capitol and they take a few months, sometimes uh better part of a year to write a new constitution for their state. And these con- conventions are highly democratic because uh, all of the delegates are locally elected and they represent their neighbors uh, probably even more closely than um, at least in the 19th century than the state legislatures did. And they're extremely responsive because they're constantly writing back and forth to their friends and family and neighbors. Um, So they're, uh, they're fascinating glimpses into 19th century democracy. Particularly in new states. And that's why I, uh, the book was uh, titled Frontier Democracy because it shows the development of new states and new governments in um, freshly settled areas.
0: How conscious, Silvana, are these framers out in states like Indiana and Illinois and Wisconsin, etc.? How conscious are they of the original framers in Philadelphia, and how often do they invoke the imagery and the uh, rhetoric of those earlier and more famous framers?
1: Oh, they're extremely conscious. Uh, They know these guys as they're um, kind of saying goodbye to their families and packing their releases and getting ready to go. Um, One of the things they all do is um, they sit down and study as much as they can of um, uh, founding history. Now, uh, I have to uh, remind you, uh, you know, the readers, I guess, that most of them would not have known what happened in Philadelphia because the um, the debates, have, for the most part, had not yet been published. But they certainly knew the Constitution very well. They had studied that. Um, they one of the reasons they held these conventions in capital cities was that they were close to the libraries, like university libraries. Um, for example, in Iowa City. Uh, or, or even in Columbus, Ohio, where they could get newspapers, history books, uh, works on constitutional law. Um, I, I would say they were extremely knowledgeable, and they also studied the state constitutions and many other documents of other states as well. Um, what I found really interesting about all this too was that these guys knew what was going on in Europe at the same time, and you would call This was a time when a lot of European countries were exploding in democratic revolutions. So the delegates in a lot of the Midwestern states were very anxious to know what was going on there and how it might affect the whole idea of democratic Um, self-government. You asked about imagery too. Um, That's something I found very interesting when I was studying the, the debates in these conventions, um, they're they're deeply reverent about um, fundamental concepts and ideas about American self-government. So, um, one of the things I found really interesting is this notion of uh, building a house, or building a palace, or a, a temple, or a church. Uh, that's how they they thought about their project, their constitution building project. You know, they often used images and metaphors to try to grasp what the complexity and the enormity of what they were doing, which they took very seriously. And um, so they were, they were searching for ways of understanding that and of explaining it to themselves and using the building metaphor was one way of um, helping them to to make more concrete connections to this, this highly abstract and complicated task that they had in front of them.
0: Silvana, I noticed early on in your book that you talked about some of the experts or authorities that these constitutional framers relied upon, and you talk about them tracing their ideas to scripture, Greek and Roman classical writers, uh, Montesquieu and John Locke, and uh, you know legal theorists like William Blackstone, who all of us who went through the rigors of law school remember Blackstone's commentaries very well. But uh, this indicates a, a pretty high level of knowledge among the delegates about their Uh, predecessors
1: yeah i i think that's absolutely right i um this is what i found so fascinating about these people I, i wasn't able to find out for each one of them exactly what his level of education was because not all of them left behind biographies but um to the degree that i was able to research that i found that you know, a good percentage, maybe um, maybe not quite a, a 25%, but a good number of them had had some kind of college training. Uh, many others had uh, high school or academy education. And all, all these things are very different now, uh, and we can't really compare a modern college education to uh, a 19th century one. but. Uh, I think most of them were self-educated people, uh, people who were literate and, you know, had learned, you know, to read abstract theoretical works, but who just sat down and, and studied them on their own. Um, it was also... Uh, I think that they probably brushed up on this before they left because they knew that they'd be confronting uh, well-educated and, and to some degree experienced men in these conventions and they uh, they wanted to make an impression. Some of them maybe were hoping to have political careers after they finished their work. Um, and I, I think it was just a, a custom at the time when you were making a political speech to salt it with Uh, classical allusions, scriptural, scripture quotations, mostly from the Old Testament rather than the New Testament, Um, and and poetry. Uh, You see a lot of John Bunyan in there, um, Tennyson, uh, more uh, English poets than American ones, I guess. So uh, the other thing about this that I think is, uh, that's very interesting to me is how young these guys were. A lot of them were in their 20s, Um, I think the majority were maybe in their mid to late thirties. So it wasn't that far, they weren't that far removed from their um, education. And they probably still had a lot of the quotations at their fingertips. Uh, And uh, one other thing about that, uh, 19th century children, uh, both boys and girls, uh, a major part of their education was memorization. So they had a fairly wide fund of these quotations handy when they were making their speeches.
0: Is it fair to say, Silvana, that 19th century education was also very focused on the classics? Um, These children would have read John Locke and Montesquieu as part of their studies. Is that right?
1: It depends on their education. I think that's true for, um, well, it's actually true for girls, too, to some degree, but it's true more true for people with an academy education, a private high school. Uh, I don't think it's as true for someone who was going to, attending a local grammar school, for example, uh, it's hard to know. It, it would depend on how the preparation and education of the teacher. Uh, Probably more than, uh, you know, and and it's more true in more settled areas, for example, in Ohio rather than in, say, Indiana or Illinois in the 1820s or 30s. But again, it, it depended entirely on how well educated their teacher was.
0: We're talking today with Silvana Sadali, a professor of history at St. Louis University. We are talking about her new book, Frontier Democracy, Constitutional Conventions in the Old Northwest. This book was published in 2016 by... Cambridge University Press. Silvana, tell us a little bit about why you decided to focus on the Midwestern states for your study. Is there something about this region that you were drawn to?
1: Yeah, well, it's, it's a brand new region for scholarship. Uh, it's just now, I would say in the last 10 years or so, um, historians have discovered that this is a, a, a rich uh, and wonderful treasure house of information that really hasn't been used enough. But um, I've always wanted to do to work on state constitutions for my second book. I, I think they're uh, uh, incredibly important sources for understanding American democracy. And at the time that I first started thinking about this project, uh, almost nothing had been done on you know any kind of uh specialized or detailed studies of these uh, of these documents and and of the way that they came to life in these conventions and i remember thinking well how am i gonna how am i gonna focus this i can't write on all 30 or or 33 constitutions before the civil war era um, since i knew i wanted to focus it in 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 the early to mid 19th century and then one day i was wandering through chicago's uh library the chicago university's library and i looked up and saw um just row after row of these wonderful old volumes of um county histories and i realized oh my goodness this is all of life here i I mean there's everything in here about the way people wanted to govern themselves, about what they thought their lives should be like, how they wanted to treat one another, what rights they wanted. And I realized just on a very quick search that no one had ever written about this at all. not even I didn't even find any journal articles, really, that discussed the constitutional conventions themselves. So I thought, well, you know, since it hasn't been done, maybe there's something here. And I've never history, of, as they
0: say. That's a great, great project. Um, I've shared with you previously that a long time ago I did a research project on the crafting of the Constitution for the future state of South Dakota during the 1980s, or excuse me, during the 1880s. And one of right. the things that I noticed during that process is the heavy degree of borrowing by the delegates from earlier Midwestern states. And I seem to recall a lot of borrowing from Wisconsin and Iowa and Ohio in particular. And I'm not sure why that was, but I noticed almost no borrowing from states in the American South. It was very much the states that you study that they were yeah. borrowing from. Well,
1: uh, yes, I. I there are two things to be said about that. Uh, first of all, these people, the delegates, were always under a tremendous amount of pressure. Uh, it's just astonishing what they had to do and how little time they had to do it. Um, they, All of these people were either farmers or merchants or physicians. Uh, I don't know um, in your project what you found, but in many of my uh, states, there were a lot of lawyers, but they were not by any means in the majority. Uh, it, so these guys all had an enormous amount of work waiting for them back home. They had their families depending on them. Um, and then the, the the minute they hit their conventions, they discover, well, this is not something we, we're going to be able to do in three or four weeks. This is gonna, we're in it for the long haul. So there was that pressure. Um, and also political pressures. They get a lot of mail from home uh, yelling at them about what they're doing or praising them on their own. You know, some of these people are thinking about political careers and they they don't want to uh, jeopardize that. So they have to tread a very careful line and, and what they have to do especially is figure out something that A is gonna work, at least for the time being, and B that won't be rejected by Congress, uh, because all of these state constitutions and the other documents are part of the, the admission package, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So I, it's not surprising to me that they're looking at other state constitutions to see what's worked. I mean, why reinvent the wheel? Um, and I think, uh, They're using Ohio and Wisconsin and Iowa. Those are the three states that tend to be used the most in the the newer Western constitutions. Because these are states that confronted a lot of the same problems. I I can see why South Dakota, for example, would look at Wisconsin, because they're... You know, Wisconsin, they had to figure out um... native american citizenship for example these are states that are building a brand new infrastructure uh, civic as well as transportation infrastructure these are states that face some of the same economic uh, problems trade problems so it it doesn't surprise me um... also wisconsin is particularly interesting because This is a state constitution that became internationally famous, and as you you may know, um, the chartists in England praised it, they thought it was just about a perfect government document, and so it was translated into other languages, and it becomes a model. Um, overseas, uh, and it, there's no doubt in my—I don't know this for a fact. I mean, you would—you would know this better than I. But I, I wouldn't be surprised if your South Dakota people were not aware of uh, the the reputation of that state constitution.
0: Yes, I think that's right. And I think another element to all of this is the source of the. Settlers in South Dakota was the Midwest. I mean very few Southerners moved into Dakota Territory to become farmers in the 1880s These were mostly people from the Midwest and to the extent they had Training in civic affairs or maybe even the law they would be bringing along their law books from uh, Wisconsin and Iowa and Indiana so it makes sense that that's where they would borrow from
1: Exactly. Yeah
0: uh, Silvana, the first time that I uh, became aware of your project was a couple of years ago when I was visiting with the editor of the Western Historical Quarterly, uh, David Hi. Rich Lewis, and I was commenting to him, "Boy, I wish there was more about the Midwest out there and in your journal." And he said, "Well, you're going to be very happy because we have a article coming out very soon about the Constitution." Constitutional conventions uh, in the Midwest and how they handled the question of banking and economic issues. So that was the first time that I had heard of it. But tell us, tell us if you could, uh, a little bit about why banking was so controversial, or why did this come up so much in these constitutional conventions of the 1830s and 40s?
1: Oh uh, yeah, well. Before I get to that, I, I should explain one thing uh, that may help clarify how the book is put together, which is um, I wanted to write about the subjects that these people found important and interesting. Uh, usually, when you're looking at state constitutions, people think about more uh, you know, questions dealing with governance or the judiciary, the state legislatures and or divided powers, things like that. But I thought, you know, once I realized that the state constitutional conventions, that their proceedings were published in so much detail, I thought, no, I don't want to do that. I want to see what they talked about, and that's how I came up with the themes in the book. I only wrote about those things that people became very exercised about. And banking, as you say, was probably the number one topic Um, uh, next to, yeah, I would say next to uh, black people's uh, civil rights, which may have been the number one, at least just in terms of the amount of space they take up, the, the, the number of hours these people spoke on topics and the number of speeches they made. and and resolutions and votes, uh, those were probably the two top subjects. So banking became very important, and a lot of that, of course, had to do with the uh, the terrible economic downturns that were occurring in the late 1830s that devastated some of these state economies. Uh, There was, uh, as you know, a, a massive... Well, they called it a panic, which I think is a great name for depression uh, because it, it it has so much in it of the emotional response of consumers, uh, and particularly people who are trying to uh, make a go in a make a go of it in, a, in an area that has almost no infrastructure at all. Uh, banking was crucially important be, for, for several reasons. One is, that as, as i mentioned the a lot of these states were facing serious economic issues uh indiana and illinois especially were on the brink of going bankrupt and for a young state that hasn't even really governed itself for more than a generation that's catastrophic uh because well for lots of reasons obviously they want it. um it's bad, very bad for the people who live there but they also want to attract settlers to develop the state, and above all, to attract uh, national and international investors. Um, a lot of them, they, these people know that they can't they can't really prosper until they develop their their transportation infrastructure, canals, railroads, plank roads, the national road, um, and they're not going to do that without investors and in an era when Andrew Jackson had pretty much destroyed the National Bank, and uh, there was widespread uh, bankruptcy, and a lot of the banks ha- had gone bust, um, that was a-, a serious problem. The other thing, of course, is is that people did feel, um, they were very suspicious of banks. And uh, and like right, so, a lot of these things were not well capitalized. Uh, usually, uh, and this is something that um, you probably remember from our own recent economic history. A lot of their their funds were based on unsecured loans. Um, so they used loans uh, as capital, and we all know how well that works. Uh, so. Uh, people beca- be- began to be very suspicious about um, these sort of fly-by-night, wildcat banks. Uh, that said, uh, one thing I learned researching this topic was that a lot of these smaller banks, the more unregulated banks, actually um, sort of jump-started and monetized these economies. and supported um, small businesses um, that were were necessary to keep these uh, young territories and states flourishing. So, uh, but the, you know, there's a lot of debate about that among historians, but um, banking and currency especially were probably the subject that hit people closest to where they lived. You know, a lot of these, uh, young families who are talking about parents in their 30s and 40s and and with a, a growing family were very concerned about being able to um, make, to, to survive and when they're handling money that uh, loses value as soon as they spend it or money with paper money that, that isn't a legal currency and with which they can't buy land or pay their debts, then that's a, a serious issue and one that they, these people again and again insisted had to be a constitutional issue. It, it was something they explicitly did not want the legislatures to handle because the legislatures had actually been... Complicit in a lot of this, um, and I don't think uh, they did so dishonestly. It was the, the, the mechanism of founding a bank, basically meant that you had to go to the state legislature to ask for a charter. The state legislature then cast um, a private, basically what we call a private law, charging these banks, and rightly or wrongly, you know, they were not well. Um, supervised or you know there was there was almost no regulation, there was no real oversight and a lot of um, yeah, well, yeah, you know a lot of uh, unfortunate results happened and um, there, there's a, a it's kind of funny in retrospect although I'm sure it wasn't funny at the time there's an anecdote in the book about an inspector, a state legislative inspector, who, who's trying to figure out why a bank is failing. And he, they show him all these drawers full of silver, gold and silver coins. Um, and when he moves the coins aside a little bit, he sees them that, the, that underneath the top layer of coins, there's, I think what it was, just chips of broken glass and nails. Which you know is a pretty adequate picture of some of the problems of dealing with uh, money in, in these frontier states at that time.
0: Right. You you mentioned Jackson, uh, Andrew Jackson, and this is uh, the Jacksonian era of trying to promote. Democratic small d reforms. And a couple of those reforms that were particularly important on the frontier among people who were trying to contrast themselves with more elite controlled uh, states on the coasts was an attempt to restrict the power of the governors by restricting his appointments and also to restrict the power of judges by making them subject to uh, re-election every few years. Can you comment on that?
1: Right. Well, uh, early on, as you know, in in the first wave of settlement, the first wave of um, constitutions. Uh, the governors had an incredibly powerful veto. Uh, they and they were highly autocratic and became um, unpopular, and, um, and and people felt it uh, downright destructive. So what the first uh... order of revision for these state constitutions is to remove or to really hamstring the governor's ability to veto uh, legislation at the same time as i was just saying the state legislatures were coming under enormous and, I, and I, I do think largely unfair criticism um... because of their role in as people uh... saw it bankrupting the states um, I, I should say too that a lot of this has to do with the fact that everybody was kind of going crazy with uh, about, you know, the, the canal and then later on the railroad projects. They they really believed after the success of the Erie Canal that this was going to make everybody extremely wealthy and to put the state economies on a very solid footing. Um, as you know, that that didn't happen a lot of these projects failed uh, bankrupt there were just too many of them and they weren't they, they weren't well uh, managed So the state legislatures and the governors both come in for severe criticism and both of them both of these entities lose power in these democratic um, and they are democratic as you say small D democratic. As well as large, D Democratic um, uh, constitutions. So, yeah, uh, both of them. A lot of the, a lot of what happens here is that these, as you know the everything down to dog catcher becomes an elected right. <laughs> office, um, and the judges themselves. But that's a nationwide process that starts in this era and. Um, and continues on through the rest of the nineteenth century that judges become elective rather than appointed and yes that has that has to do with limiting the the governor's power, but it also has to do with people wanting more oversight into the judicial process that nineteenth century Americans were much more deeply involved in all of this. I, and, I, and I think I'm just starting to see that now and, and maybe in, in in recent weeks and months as Americans getting more involved in their own government and, and starting to, um, to want to act on a more personal level. This, this is something I thought we had lost since the Jacksonian era, actually. But, um, well, for example, if you're elected to a jury in 1840s, 1850s, Illinois, or Indiana, or Wisconsin, um, the judge would ask you not only to find on the facts, but, but also to talk about the law. And um, these jurors would be much more deeply involved in the verdict than perhaps jurors are today.
0: Hmm. So, I, well, I don't
1: know if I just answered your question or not, actually. <laughs>
0: Well, Silvana, uh, you mentioned the second biggest issue uh, that was debated in these constitutional conventions uh, related to uh, related to race relations and African Americans in the Midwest, and as we've previously discussed. Um, uh, Wisconsin became the first state to extend uh, voting rights to African Americans in, I think, 1866. Can you just give us a summary of how these conventions dealt with the question of race and civil rights and voting rights, etc.?
1: Yeah, I think that, that it came as a, a massive surprise to them that it would become such a major issue. Um, I, I, the impression I have, just looking at their you know the resolutions and votes and, and uh, amendments. Um, I think that they were not expecting that. That these men weren't really prepared for that. Um, as you know, when when they show up and on the first day of their the, the as the convention opens, the first thing that happens, um, besides electing a president and kind of showing their credentials, is they they get put into. Committees to deal with the more hot-button or the, the 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 more serious issues, and for in many of these conventions, there actually wasn't anything like a committee to deal with uh, the contested voting rights of African Americans. Um, they suddenly discover that this becomes a, an issue because. Uh, people living in the state start flooding the conventions with petitions and demands and they show up. Uh, in Ohio, for example, uh, a group of African-American civil rights activists actually uh, present a document asking the delegates there to talk about black voting rights and they have a meeting in the convention hall to discuss how, how that might be achieved. Um, I think to understand this, uh, we have to step back. Um, And I'm sure um, you know this and probably your listeners know this, that the the Annabelle Midwest was settled in two streams, a southern stream that came up from Virginia and and other uh, southern states, and then a northern stream that came across from the New England and the mid-Atlantic states. And these streams settled. In a, in a predictable pattern where the, the New Englanders and Mid-Atlantic uh, settlers settle in the, the northern tier counties, where the southerners, of course, settle closer to the border. Um, and what this means is that since these states were settled from the south first, their original state constitutions often don't have anything in them about voting rights for black people. In fact, they very often have um, the word white, uh, limiting voting rights to white people. Then as settlement continues and people come in from New England and New Jersey, New York, and, and also from overseas, that pattern changes. And these northern counties send delegates who are much more interested in extending voting rights to African Americans. Um, so the, this combination of petitions by concerned citizens, as well as uh, representation by people who are uh, who, who want to extend voting rights to black people, that creates uh, an explosive situation that I truly don't think anyone was expecting and that becomes a highly contentious very hotly charged topic that spills over from the committee work Uh, and and I want to explain something here for example if you take citizens rights there's a committee on citizens rights and most of their work was completely straightforward and never generated any real debate because everyone agreed. Um, they looked at the uh, the United States Constitution, you know, the, the Bill of Rights, the first 10 amendments, and they said, okay, well, we like this. Uh, we might take it apart and, and, and put, turn it into many more rights. But if you study them carefully, you see that really what they're doing is taking some of the, say, Fourth and Fifth Amendment rights and just, just detailing them as separate articles. What they weren't expecting was that there would be people on all these committees who said, yes, but we have to delete the word white from voter qualifications. And so these disagreements in the committee actually spill out onto the the convention floor, they're productive of immense amounts of speeches. Um, It's hard to tell, you know, uh, it's impossible to know, actually, whether every speech was reproduced in these these journals. Um, I I tend to think that it was. Uh, But we do have very accurate records of their votes and their resolutions. And it's clear to me that this debate was the one that took up probably the most amount of room in many, not all, but many of the conventions. And that it was, a lot of it was spearheaded outside the convention uh, with citizens writing in their concerns and particularly sending in voluminous petitions. I actually saw a lot of these in Iowa and in, in Ohio when I was working in the um, archives there. Just long, long rolls with thousands of names. You know, they just would keep going more and more pieces of paper to the bottom of the petition. They have boxes and boxes of these. It's, it's mm. pretty astonishing when you consider that overall in the United States at that time. Um, emancipation or the abolition of slavery was not a popular subject, uh, That, in fact, I would say, you know, some historians say 1.5% to 2% of the American population probably supported the idea of emancipation um, before and really until the middle of the Civil War. So that was surprising, and I and um, to me that was one of the most interesting aspects of this because it shows just how deeply concerned citizens were and how seriously they took the idea of writing a constitutional, um, writing their own founding charters.
0: I wonder, uh, Silvana, you teach at a Catholic college. I wonder, during this era, 1830s, 1840s, when the first Irish Catholic immigrants began to show up and German Catholic immigrants begin to show up, uh, do the delegates ever talk about uh, their concerns about the Catholic immigration or are there any discussions of restricting Catholic voting or anything like that?
1: You know, that's a wonderful question, and um, that's another thing that really surprised me because this is the era of nativism, um, and I, I would have expected that some of that would, would have crept into the into these uh, conventions, but uh, because this is a highly political process and because in some ways these conventions are more representative of the territories of the state's population than than even the legislatures were. You don't actually see that. Uh, If anything, they're always very careful to talk about religious liberties, um, protecting uh, religious freedom. Um, What I found really interesting about this, too, is uh, when they're talking about Mormons, for example, um, I, I would have expected maybe some some, I don't know, if not negative, at least uh, perhaps some kind of a prejudice there, but there was nothing, and in fact they're always very careful to say whether we believe this or not we can't have any um, there, there will not be any uh, diminution of religious liberties for any people um, even if we find some of their beliefs, some um, strange or problematic now with um the other thing too is a lot of these conventions in the early years really until you get to oh, uh, the later like iowa and minnesota in 1857 were um is either dominated by republicans or certainly had a strong republican um Presence. So those two, uh, setting those two aside, uh, these conventions were largely dominated by Democrats, and they their constituencies are, well, some of them are immigrants, you know, Irish and German immigrants, and they they don't want to alienate them. So the one thing that, uh, in, in those cases, uh, their opponents were Whigs, not te- not Republicans, and what they're concerned about. Is more well. Do these people understand enough about living and voting in a republic? Do they have enough um, civic education? And should we think about making sure that they've lived here long enough before we extend the vote to them? Those proposals inevitably come from Whigs, and then and then later the Republicans. But they're always shot down. Um, they're uh, so. Yeah, to answer your question, um, the this is more to do with citizenship and voting rights, not religion. I haven't seen anything at all. And I, I've read these things pretty carefully. I can't think of even one um, anti-Catholic uh, comment. I mean, uh, there might be one that I could have missed, but surely if it were uh, a prominent point of view, I would, have, I
0: would have seen it. You've been listening to Heartland History, the podcast of the Midwestern History Association. Today we have been visiting with Silvana Sadali, a professor of history at St. Louis University. We have been visiting about her new book entitled Frontier Democracy, Constitutional Conventions in the Old Northwest. This book is published by Cambridge University Press and focuses on the process of writing constitutions in Midwestern states such as Ohio, Indiana, Michigan, Illinois, Wisconsin, Iowa, and others. We want to thank Silvana for joining us today, and we want to thank all of our listeners for tuning in once again. This broadcast was produced by Dana Brown. Thank you again, Silvana.
1: Well, thank you. It's been great to have a chance to talk about all this again.
0: (sighs) Thanks again. Thank you again for tuning in to Heartland History. If you would like more information about the Midwestern History Association, visit
1: us at midwesternhistory.com. You'll have access to
0: information about memberships, news about upcoming conferences, calls for papers, and panel proposals related to Midwestern history. You might also be interested in subscribing to the print journal Middle West Review or reading our
1: online journal, Studies in Midwestern History. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter and you can find us on Facebook. Until next time,